Jodcast. Quoting Niall, I hate witty comments, they're stupid. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasani, Samuel Lesk, Emma Alexander, Nell McCallum, Ankashana Srinivasan, Hongming Tang, and Jake Starbug Morgan. The Jodcast, May 2019 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Emma, and joining me in the studio are Niall and Shanka. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, it's great to be back. I've not been on for a while. Same, actually. It feels weird sitting behind this microphone. It's weird. I've actually not been in the new studio until now. So Have it's you really not? Exciting. I've, like, I've seen it, but I'm not recording in it, so it's, it's properly exciting. It's still, still very exciting. Mm-hmm. And what's also exciting is that it's Shanka's first time joining us, so hi. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, so I'm Shanka. I study dark matter and dark energy uh, in the JBCA, and I'm very excited to be here. Have you tried turning on the light? They're so dark. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) In the show this time, Jake Starberg Morgan interviews 6C Resonan about black holes as dark matter candidates and the future of scientific publishing. And Ian Morrison, Haritina Mogosanu and Samuel Lesky take a look at what's happening in the May night sky. But first, before all that, here's Hong Ming with this month's news. This month in the news... The updated LIGO is back. Tess found its first Earth-sized exoplanet, and Israel's plans for the Bereshit 2 lander or to the moon. Firstly, LIGO and Virgo have been updated and are now finding a black hole merger every week. A little over a year ago, LIGO and Virgo triggered their upgrade procedures. After the upgrade, the instrument sensitivity of LIGO and Virgo increased by 40%. It was expected that this could possibly allow for weekly event detection. After the upgrade finished on April the 1st, the observatory detected two probable gravitational wave events in two weeks. LIGO and Virgo collaboration sent the first public alert of an event they detected on April 8th and announced it three days later. On April 12th, the detectors caught a second signal. The two events were observed thanks to the collaboration between LIGO and Virgo observatories. They are both believed to be the result of black holes merging. The announcement also marked that the new observation period 03 has begun and will last for about a year. Now they are making their third observation run, a new public alert system was applied to benefit the community. The LIGO team will send out alerts when the detection is made, and observatories around the world then can point their telescopes at the sources. Multi-messenger astronomy would allow scientists to learn more about the cause of gravitational waves events, and also the dynamics behind them. The improved sensitivity also motivated scientists to study not only pulsar-pulsar merging and black hole-black hole merging, but also black hole neutron star merging. Also, the LIGO public alerts include a sky map that provides the possible location of the source in the sky, the time when an event is detected, and what kind of the event it is believed to be. In the future, more detailed information on the candidates will be given once proper study of them is done. If you would like to hear about alerts in the future, you can download the alert app at Gravitational Wave Events iPhone app. Next up, TESS just found its first Earth-sized exoplanet. 
After the Kepler telescope's retirement, NASA's new planet-hunting telescope, TESS, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, just found its first Earth-sized exoplanet. This observation was taken in January this year, but it was not until April 15th they confirmed their status with follow-up observations and had the discovery published. The newly discovered Earth-sized planet is orbiting an orange main-sequence star called HD 21749. This solar system is about 53 light years from Earth and 70% the mass of the Sun. The Earth-sized exoplanet is called HD 21947c, and the system also has a hot sub-Neptune planet called HD 21749b. The discovery of this sub-Neptune contributes to Test Level One science requirement of providing 50 transiting planets smaller than four times of Earth radius with measured masses. Test was expected to discover about 300 Earth-like exoplanets in two years, which made this discovery really significant. The idea behind Test is to discover small Earth-sized exoplanets, as its Predecessor, the Kepler telescope, mostly found exoplanets with way larger sizes than Earth. Without a doubt, TESS will become a game-changing space telescope in the field of exoplanet studies in the next few years. Finally, the plan of Israel's Bereshit 2 lunar craft has been released. Earlier last month, the Bereshit, Israel's moon lander, crashed into the moon. This historic project is the first ever private-funded moon landing project, and Israel became the fourth country attempted to land on the moon. The Bereshit lander started as an entry to the Google Lunar X Prize, and cost two hundred million dollars to build, which make it one of the cheapest lunar landings in human history. The Google Lunar X Prize committee announced. That it will award Space IL a one million dollar worth moonshot award for its achievement, as said by the X Prize founder Peter Diamandis. Space IL's mission not only touched the moon; it touches the lives and hearts of an entire world that was watching. Fortunately, the failure of Bereshit is not the end of the project. Morris Kahan. Israeli billionaire entrepreneur and founder of Space IL announced on April 13 that they are going to send the second lander to the moon and use the failure of Bereshit as a building block. With the announcement of Bereshit 2, Space IL might make Israel not only the fourth country to try to land on the moon, but the fourth to succeed. This is the end of the news in May. I'm Homing. Thank you. Thanks for that, Hongming. Now, Jake Starberg Morgan interviews Sixi Resnan in an extended interview about black holes as dark matter candidates and the future of scientific publishing. I'm joined this afternoon by Dr. Sixi Resnan from the University of Helsinki. Welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So. I'm sitting on the other side of the table, and I'm feeling a little bit out of my depth at the moment because I am a time domain astronomer, and you have come to us from the world of cosmology beyond the standard model. So I'm going to have to be on my toes for this. 
from what I gathered during your special seminar that you gave this afternoon, you have been looking into new possibilities with using the Higgs boson to explain inflation. Is that correct? Uh, that's right, yes. So, starting off from the beginning, I suppose, could you explain to our listeners what is the Higgs boson and where does it fit into cosmology? Yeah. So the Higgs, the Higgs, of course, became a superstar when it was detected at the European Particle Physics Laboratory CERN's Large Hadron Collider, uh, and a Nobel Prize was given for it uh, in the past few years. And uh, Higgs is best well known for the property of giving other particles their masses. And the way this works is that the particles in the standard model, uh, with the exception of the neutrinos, their, the origin of neutrino masses are not known, so let's set them aside. But for the other particles, they're basically massless. But they behave as if they had mass. And the way this works is that the Higgs field fills all of space, and these particles interact with the Higgs field, which sort of impedes their motion. So it looks as if they had mass. This is like, if you consider, like, for example, if you walk in water, it's more difficult for you to walk. It's as if your feet were heavier because you're going through a medium. So likewise, the elementary particles are going through the medium of the Higgs field. And the more strongly they interact with the Higgs field, the more it impedes their motion. So uh, the heavier they seem to be. So that's the... Uh, particle physics picture of the Higgs. Uh, and then it was realized uh, in 2007 by Fedor Bezrukov, who is now at the University of Manchester, and uh, Mikhail Shaposhnikov uh, at EPFL in Lausanne, that one can use the Higgs field, which is filling all of space, um, to also explain things about the early universe, so about what happened in the first fraction in the small in a small fraction of the first second <clears throat> and this ties into something that's called cosmic inflation which is one of the main research one of the most important research topics in cosmology and cosmic inflation is currently our best explanation for where the seeds of structure come from. So if we look at the universe, so, I mean, so starting from the Earth, I mean, of course, we see really, really complicated structures. You know, we say DNA, we see humans, trees, and then we have planets going out, stars, we have galaxies, these galaxies form filaments and walls and voids. So the question is, how have they formed? Where have they come from? And uh, uh, our current understanding is that everything has grown from very small fluctuations of the order one in 100,000. So if we look at the early universe, say the when the universe was, uh, uh, say, 100,000 years old, then the matter was very uniform. So there were no planets, no galaxies, no structures, and there were just these small variations, one part in 100,000 in density. And then because of gravitational attraction, the parts that are overdense accrete matter, and they form the nuclei of galaxies where planets form and we form and so on. So everything that we see, all of the structure, you know, humans, all human culture is traced to these random fluctuations. And inflation uh, was invented in the 1980s, if you want to use that term, uh, as a way to explain where these original small perturbations came from. The idea is, is rather simple. You have some field that's filling all of space, which in the case of Higgs inflation is the Higgs field. And this field... Its gravity is repulsive instead of attractive. I don't, won't get into why. And therefore, 
it pushes different parts of space-time or different parts of space away from each other. So the expansion accelerates and so all these inhomogeneities that may have been there before are swept away. So the universe becomes, uh, starts to look almost the same in all places and all directions. And then there are just small quantum fluctuations on this field, which, which generate these sort of small ripples. When inflation ends, then this field <coughs> decays, produces the particles that we see now. And in places where the field value is bigger, generate more particles. Where the field value is smaller, you generate less. And this gives you the inhomogeneities. Now, inflation was invented as in the 1980s, but it wasn't until 2007 that it was realized that you can use the Higgs field that you already know to exist to drive inflation. And this is really, uh, it's a con very conservative, a very economical way um, of doing cosmology in the sense that you really try to say, let's start with what we know to exist and try to go as far as we can with it. So can we do inflation with just the Higgs field? And it looks like we can. Okay, so it's pretty fundamental to how we came into being. Uh, if it's true, I mean, there are hundreds of inflationary models. I would say Higgs inflation is the simplest. It doesn't mean it's the correct model. Mm. So we have to wait for a few bit more observations and see whether these observations fall into line with the predictions of Higgs inflation or whether they go against them and show that this is not the right model. Mm. Okay. So a nice phrase that you mentioned back there was mm. using what we already know about mm. and pushing that as far as we can to yeah. explain what we observe. Yeah. Because an alternative that you mentioned at the start of your talk mm. is perhaps using supersymmetry. And so this is more getting onto the nature of dark matter and what that might be. So is it worth giving a little recap at this point as to what supersymmetry is? <laughs> yeah. So, um, we have, so Higgs was the last pillar of what is called the standard model of particle physics that was discovered in 2012. And this simple yet grandiose name of the standard model was all of the pieces were put together in the 1970s. Uh, Higgs was, so Higgs field was invented in the 1960s independently. They must said, okay, we can put it together as part of the standard model. Then all these bits were found one by one. Higgs field was the last one in 2012. Uh, and then it was in, and, and it was already in the 1970s when standard models put together, people realized that, okay, this is probably not the final theory. I mean, we know this is not the final theory. Uh, let's think about what is beyond that. And it was generally thought that there would be new physics right around the corner so that if you find the Higgs particle, and, uh, then you will also find a whole a zoo of other particles, particles as well that sort of fix what we are seeing as, I would say, aesthetic problems, aesthetic shortcomings of the standard model. And supersymmetry, I'm not sure if I want to get into details, was one such proposal for going beyond the standard model that was very popular at the time that in the when applied to these problems of the standard model basically predicts that for all of the particles we know, there is a supersymmetric particle that has the same kind of uh properties, and if supersymmetry were exactly true in nature, these new particles would have been seen. So there is, okay, supersymmetry is is not an exact property of the real world, but it's somehow um, currently the universe, it's, it's, it's broken, it's violated, which is, and, and in um, particle physics, 
There are often these sorts of symmetries that the fundamental theory possesses, but in our current state of the universe, they are broken so that you don't see these theories, so, so that you don't see these uh, symmetries. For example, in this case, symmetry between the ordinary particles and the supersymmetric partners. Ordinary, they have, have almost the same properties, but the supersymmetry broken so that these uh, superpartners are heavier. Therefore, we haven't seen them. You know, if you think of colliders, you collide particles together, um, and then you produce new particles. But you cannot produce particles that have masses that are heavier than the energy you put in the collision. So if your particles are very heavy, you will not see them in colliders. But in order for this, and the idea was that, that these new supersymmetric particles have about the same, you know, this, this difference in the masses of the same order as the Higgs mass. So when you find the Higgs, you should also find these new particles. And, uh, this was the, this was, um, widely shared expectation. Um, and none of these new particles have been seen. And, um, this is a disappointment, disillusionment, one might almost say, for many people in the physics community. And uh, this has sort of led to a bit of change in philosophy, uh, certainly change that, that I have embraced, that instead of looking for these complicated constructions uh, beyond the standard model, we would want to see, want to stop and see Let's look at the structure of the standard model just a bit more carefully and, and let's see what we can do with it. And supersymmetry is one example of these uh, extensions, but there are others. Mm. Because I remember when I was a fresh-faced undergrad starting back in 2012 at the University of Sussex. Mm. So this would have been a few months after the discovery of the Higgs was announced. Mm. And of course, we have we had particle physicists in the department working mm. on supersymmetry. And as I progressed through my studies, I became more aware of this and more aware of them becoming slowly more demoralized as it became apparent that supersymmetry was not going to be one of the favored ways forward. Yeah, but really that was just, uh, you know, in physics, it's actually, it's rare for things to happen in such that you have one big observation then that completely changes things. I mean, sometimes it does happen, but more it's an accumulation of knowledge. And okay, supersymmetry has not been seen at the LHC. It was also not seen at Tevatron, which is a big collider, was a big collider at Fermilab in Chicago. It was not seen at the collider LEP2, which is in the same tunnel where the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, is now. And people, you know, always expected, you know, the next collider with the next update, finally we will see something. And, you know, it's like, you know, you're wandering in the woods, and somebody's telling you, no, no, this is not the right way. And you say, no, no, no. If we continue, you know, a few kilometers more, you know, then we see the mountain we're heading to and you don't see that. No, no, a few kilometers more. And uh, there's no rule of science. You know, there's no scientific method that will tell you at which point you should stop and change direction. Hmm. So, yeah, so this would be a good time to steer this back to what you've been doing, as in using the things we already know about. We know about the existence of the Higgs. Hmm. So you have been exploring the possibility of the Higgs generating dark matter candidates in the form of black hole dark matter. That was a phrase that immediately jumped out at me from your slides. Mm. And somehow I had not heard of this before today. Mm. And so I think for the benefit of the listeners, we need to fix that. So <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So... We know from astrophysical and cosmological observations that about 80% of matter is dark. And dark doesn't mean that it's hiding something behind it. It just means that we don't see it, we don't see it with light. We see its gravitational pull. 
So we see how it affects the motions of visible matter, matter that we do see, how it affects the motion of light, uh, but it doesn't emit light, it doesn't absorb light. In a word, it could be, it's invisible. You know, invisible matter might be a better name than dark matter. And there are hundreds of particle physics candidates for dark matter, meaning you introduce some new particle with certain properties. And actually dark matter is, is in a sense, very easy to do. Like, you know, if something is invisible, like we don't see it and we also can't touch it, uh, it sounds very exotic, you know, from the everyday point of view. But from the point of view of physics, it's very simple. You know, we see things because the stuff that we are built from, so that is to say atoms, have electric charges. So I see you because light from the lamps is hitting the the electrons, the outer electrons in the molecules of your skin. And uh, it's then coming from them to my eyes and hitting the electrons in my eyes. Now, if, if I didn't have any electric charge, the light coming from you would just go through me. Or if you didn't have an electric charge, the light would just go through you and I wouldn't see you. And likewise, I, I couldn't touch you. So the only the all you need is a particle that doesn't have electric charge and that is stable so it doesn't decay and there you can have your dark matter. Uh, but what is, I think, less appreciated that in principle you don't even need a new particle. I mean, so dark matter could consist of black holes. So black holes, of course, you wouldn't see them. And if you have the right amount, so if you have about, you know, four or five times as much as you have ordinary matter, then they would be the perfect candidate. The question is how to get these black holes. We, of course, know that there are black holes in the universe. So we know that there is a black hole uh, that has about four million solar masses at the center of the Milky Way, center of our galaxy, and also centers of other galaxies. So we have these gigantic black holes. Then we know that we have black holes of, say, of the order 10 solar masses or so, which, of course, were spectacularly uh, seen by the LIGO gravitational wave detector, which got a Nobel Prize for this discovery. Uh, and we think that these about 10 solar mass black holes are formed in uh, collapses of stars and then stars and black holes melting together. If we want dark matter to be black holes, the solar collapse is not an efficient enough route. For one thing, we know that there was dark matter before there were any planets or any stars. So it needs to come from very early times. And basically, what you need to generate black holes is just you need to have a big enough overdensity of matter that will then, you know, accrete matter, collapse. You know, if you just put enough matter, matter just densely enough, it will generate a black hole. And I earlier mentioned this cosmic inflation. So in cosmic inflation, you have these quantum fluctuations from which, uh, which are the seeds of galaxies. So these fluctuations are so uh, small of the order one in 100,000 that you don't generate black holes. Instead, you have this more uh, gentle process of accretion and structure formation. But it may be possible during inflation to generate, in addition to these small perturbations, that act as the seeds of more structure, to generate very large perturbations that then seed the black holes that would act as dark matter. So in a sense, dark matter can come from the Higgs field. The way this works is a Higgs field has large perturbations. At the end of inflation, Higgs field decays to, to ordinary matter, and then this ordinary matter uh, would collapse to form black holes. Okay. So in this scenario, how massive would these black holes be? Yeah. So... First of all, we have quite tight observational constraints on black holes as dark matter. Namely, because if black holes are dark matter, there are a lot of them. I mean, there's four or five times as much as we have of ordinary matter. And, uh, and, there can, and they can affect observations in various ways. For example, if they're the right mass, 
then they can there are a lot of them in the Milky Way around the Milky Way so then when they pass uh, between the line of sight of us and the star you can have gravitational lensing so you can see the star twinkle and this can give you constraints on them and there are many other observational methods that I won't go into for determining black hole masses so from the observational point of view uh, these black holes probably have to be very, very light in the sense they cannot be these gigantic black holes at the center of galaxies, they cannot be these 10th solar mass black holes, but they have to be very, very small. Also, if you look at the mechanism that we put together using the Higgs field for producing black holes, it turns out that if you want to produce both the black holes and the seeds of structure, so you have to have these two kinds of inhomogeneities, this is very constraining. And this puts a constraint that basically the black holes, when generate, when they first form, the mass has to be uh, cannot be bigger than about one ton. And then, of course, one of the big contributions of Stephen Hawking to physics was the fact that black holes radiate. And one ton, like on a everyday scale, seems like a lot, but on astrophysical scales, it's 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 quite light. Yeah. And uh, the smaller black holes are, the more they radiate. So if you start with these one ton black holes, they would evaporate. So Hawking evaporation means that a black hole emits radiation, so it loses energy, so therefore the black hole loses mass and shrinks, becomes less massive. And it may be that Hawking evaporation has an, is such that the black hole evaporates completely, there's nothing left, then they cannot be the dark matter. However, if the Hawking evaporation stops at some point so that you have this relic, this sort of inert nugget left over, which is a possibility, um, then in that case they could serve as dark matter, in that case they would evaporate from one ton, down to what's called the Planck mass, which in the unit that we're used to is about one microgram. So in this case, dark matter would consist of one microgram black holes with quite a small number density. So we typically have, in the volume of the Earth, it would have about one million of these small black holes. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's, it's a good point that you make there because obviously they have to be able to survive through to the present day. That's right. And Hawking radiation was something you touched on in that lecture. That's right. So for all these black holes on the order of micrograms, yes. this isn't something that we would be able to detect with, say, LIGO. Uh, no. Uh, f first of all, even if these black holes were to collide, uh, the frequency, so the wavelength of gravitational waves that they emit uh, would be far too small to be seen with the cur current gravitational wave detectors or indeed any foreseeable gravitational wave detectors. That's one thing. Another thing is that there are so few of them that collisions are probably very, very rare, also because they're extremely small. So, and you know, if you have a million of them in the volume of the Earth, of the Earth and you know, the weight is one microgram. So think that you have these tiny, tiny modes of dust. You know, they're not going to find each other and collide. So uh, there won't be gravitational waves that you can detect from them. And in fact, if dark matter does consist of these uh, black hole relics, then it's probably we will never see them, except through their gravity, which of course is why dark matter was introduced in the first place. So uh, this means that, you know, this model, this idea, you know, can survive a lot of observations, which is, of course, very bad for a model. Mm, well, that was going to be my next question. Are there any, <laughs> are there any further observations we can make? So of this idea uh, of these black hole relics as dark matter in general, if that is microgram relics, 
uh, no, except of course if we detect if dark matter is something else and we detect that something else, then we say okay, there is no need for this or there is no room for this. For this specific model that we propose, where they, where these black holes are generated uh, from the Higgs field during inflation, uh, then this particular model uh, makes specific predictions about the the ordinary fluctuations that are the seeds of structure. So currently they agree with observations, but as observations become tighter, maybe they agree, continue to agree, maybe they don't agree. And in particular, this model also predicts that at these normal seeds of normal structure are generated, then also at that time gravitational waves are generated. So these are not gravitational waves from black hole collisions. These are gravitational waves from fluctuations of vacuum. They are really generated literally from nothing during inflation, the quantum fluctuations of the vacuum. And the... This model predicts that they have a certain amplitude, and they may be, and these may be detected in the near future. Ah, okay, okay. So it does make solid predictions that can be tested in the future. That's good. Well, I do have one other area, well, not specifically of astrophysics, but pertaining to physics and astronomy in general, that I'd like to touch on, mm-hmm. because you have come to JPCA at a perfect time, as it so happens. Last week, when Myself and Josh and Emma were filming the March main episode of the Jodcast. I was talking about publishing in astronomy and astrophysics mm. because I follow the blog of Professor Peter Coles in mm. the dark. And I saw your guest post there about the future of publishing and the direction that it might or that it will hopefully will take moving to open source. So when I saw your name circulated on the email this morning, I immediately thought, right. I have to sit down with this person. So, you've been published recently in the Open Journal of Astrophysics. How did you come to hear about that? <laughs> be my first question. Because uh, I only heard about it through following Peter's blog, and I'm in the field. Uh, yeah, it was probably actually from, from the blog of Peter Coles. Uh, but I've been uh, following this open access issue and more specifically overlay journal. We'll get, I think, in a moment to what that means. Overlay journal issue in cosmology and astrophysics for a while. So in 2006, for example, there was a project called Rioja, which was set to develop these sorts of websites and this sort of software architecture uh, for low-cost peer review uh, in cosmology, because peer review is really the issue that uh, we should concentrate on rather than open access. But maybe we have to go a bit back to to explain this. Yeah, so it's, yeah, let's let's take a step back to that phrase open access. Because obviously you mentioned in that guest post the archive, mm. which is something that I certainly use every day and I'm sure well at least I hope all of my peers use it as well if they're keeping up to date in the field. Yeah. So you mentioned there that the problem of open access, people being able to read things that have been published and accepted has already been solved. Yeah, so <clears throat> there's a lot of talk and uh, now also actually also a lot of money and a lot of movement around open access. Uh, of course, in particular, we had uh, Plan S last year, which is this European Open Access Initiative. Uh, earlier, there was a Scope 3 uh, initiative uh, sort of steered by CERN and others. And... Uh, the starting point of all of these open access initiatives is very simple. It's the fact that journals cost too much. When I say too, you ask too much in comparison to what? 
they cost so much that libraries cannot afford them anymore. You know, a few years, the, the Library of Harvard University made quite an unprecedented appeal to staff of Harvard saying, please resign from journals that are not open access because we cannot afford to subscribe to these journals anymore. You know, th- you know that's quite spectacular. Mm. So everybody knows that this is the problem. Journals cost too much. And unfortunately, what has been done in open access is not to go back to the roots, but try to, so not to address the cause, but to address the symptoms. So typically open access, the basic idea of open access is that instead of subscribing to a journal, you pay the journal to make the articles freely accessible. But the question should not be, you know, and then the question can be, you know, is it the author of the journal who pays, the institution who pays, whatever. But we should be not asking the question, are we paying the journal to for subscriptions or for access? Uh, we should be asking, why are we paying these journals? What are we paying them for? And scientific publishing is really quite a spectacular field. So if we take cosmology, for example, what happens is that first, researchers do the research for free, from the point of view of the journal. They are, of course, paid by their institutions, so mostly from public funds. But let's talk about from the point of view of the publisher. They do the research for free. They write it up for free. They publish it on the uh, archive, net archive. Uh, they give it to the journal for free. Their peers commit pe- do peer review on the jo- for the journal on the article for free. Editors decide whether to publish and coordinate peer review. Sometimes editors get paid, sometimes they do not. Then, if the article gets published, then the institution of the researcher pays the journal so that the scientists who produce the article can read it. I mean, sometimes scientists even pay the journal that they can publish there. And as a result, the scientific publishing industry, you know, it's worth uh, 25 billion a year. That's a lot of money. You know, that, that is a substantial amount of money. And if you look at journals, <clears throat> journals of that sum are maybe seven to nine million euros when you're talking something that's so approximate, doesn't really matter whether it's euros or pounds. So, so billion, sorry, seven to nine billion. Um, just to put this into context, this is likely more than the total salaries of every postdoc employed in every field in the, in Europe and the United States combined. So these are huge amount of money that are going to the, that are going to the publishers, and the question is, what are we getting for it? Because journals, of course, used used to be very important. First of all, they, you would register, you know, who has done what in the journal, you know, so you can get the merits because that's that's very important, you know. People, scientists don't really work for the money; they they work for the glory, right, for the mm. prestige. Yes. You know, I, I have this result. Yes, yes. This is me. The acclaim of yeah. having done the next yes, big thing. Yeah. So, so this is pretty, okay, this person did that. Then, of course, uh, they also distributed the research and that they also acted as archives. Namely, you have the journal, then it's in the library, you can the library shelf so it will be archived and accessible, by the way, for free, forever after, you, you know, after they bought the journals, you don't need to pay again yes. in the old days. Um, and then they did peer review. So that's, which means just basically you have some quality control. But now in cosmology, when you put things on archive, so this, so this open internet archive, it's registered there, you know, when it was submitted, uh, it's distributed and it's permanently archived. So the only thing that journals are needed for is peer review, which scientists contribute to for free. So I don't know if there is any other field of business where the industry, 
where the corporation gets the raw materials for free, the work is for free, the processing costs, so, so the labor force, you know, it doesn't get paid, the processing costs are negligible, and what's also important is that the customers buy everything that they produce, you know, mm. because people, because libraries have, have to buy these journals. So, and this is reflected in the fact that if you look at the scientific publishers, the most notorious one of which is Elsevier, of course. So, if you look at their uh, margins of profit, they are bigger than for Apple, Microsoft, or Google. You know, the profits are, you know, more than 30% every year, the mar margins of profit, sometimes as, you know, large as 39%. Okay, this is, of course, good for the business, but it's very bad for science because we don't need these journals anymore. So Plan S and others are really, for example, they're committed to working with the industry, working with the journals. And they, they say, we have to reform the publishing industry, you know, to, to bring down these costs. I completely, I think this is completely false. We do not need to reform uh, the publishing industry. We need to abolish it. When we're talking about journal publishing, I mean, books and so on, that, that's a bit different story. Um, and one way of doing it, one very simple way of doing it is overlay journals. Because if you know that the work is anyway published in these open internet archives, and that's the way it's been done in cosmology, uh, particle physics, many other fields of physics, mathematics at the moment, and there is no reason why this cannot be extended to all fields of physics. You only need to do peer review. So an overlay journal is something that only does peer review. This open journal of astrophysics is one example. So what it does is you, you put your paper on the open archive, then you go to the Overlay Journal's website, say, this is my paper published on the archive, I want to peer review it, I want to publish it in your journal. Then your peers review the paper as normal, and if it's accepted, then on the website of the journal there is a note, you know, this paper was published on this website, and there is a link, when you click on it, it goes back to the archive, and you also note on the archive, this journal, this paper was published in this and this journal. And if you look at the costs, so the estimated costs of publishing a single article in, with commercial publishers is from 3,000 to 5,000 euros per article. If you look at the actual costs of what running an overlay journal is, uh, it's you can say that it's probably, for example, Open Journal of Astrophysics, the costs are well less 100 euros per article. It's a big saving. So we are talking about a factor of 30, factor of 50, you can go below that, maybe a factor of 100. And if you look at this open access, let's say, so if you look at plan S, if everything went according to plan and, and the publishers would decide to play ball with open access and, you know, lower their costs and blah, blah, this would result in savings with a, of a factor of between two and five, according to estimates, which would still mean that we would waste literally billions of euros every year paying publishers for nothing. For services that we can effectively provide for ourselves. No, that we, no, that we are already providing ourselves. Mm. So it's just the, that they do the, uh, they, what they provide is the prestigious quality stamp. You know, there is this go good quality journal, so you should publish there. And also like this, so I published an open journal of astrophysics and it was a single author paper. Other papers that I do with my PhD students, I rather publish in traditional journals because it's, because I don't want their career 
to be hampered by the fact that, you know, somebody looks and says, oh, they pub where did they publish? You know, I don't know about this journalist. It's, you know, probably some rub maybe it's some predatory rubbish journal or something. I want people to see, you know, this they published in the best journals. And that's why we need to, the community needs to step up and establish these journals. An open journal of astrophysics, uh, I mean, they have a very good editorial board. It's a very serious journal. And taking a few years, it will be it will be considered respectable. And then my PhD students can publish there. So scientists need to step up and just start founding these overlay journals, you know, getting people of the, who have high status in the community together, putting them up, you know, the software is available off the shelf, you don't need to write anything yourself. Um, the main problem, as I see at the moment, is that scientists are not paying the costs of journal publishing from their own pocket. Okay, scientists would say that this is not a problem, like this is a this is a merit, <laughs> you know, it's mm. a good thing. I mean, it's, it's the taxpayers' money, so yeah. it's still very much a problem. Yeah, yeah, so it's a problem, but it's like this, um, but you know, it's this tragedy of the commons. Nobody's paying off of their own pocket, you know, it's offloaded onto, from some common budget, so it's not your problem, it's the community's problem. But I think we as a community really have to take this seriously, because as you said, it's the taxpayers' money. You know, every article that they publish, think about it, you're wasting thousands of euros of taxpayer money. That could be gainfully spent elsewhere. Yes. Yeah. So imagine, you know, if we really switched to overlay journals and we could, you know, double the number of postdocs. You know, if you think that instead of publishing, let's say you publish, depending on the field, let's say you publish uh, four articles a year. So let's say that you would get, you know, extra, you know, 20,000 a year. You know, let's say your group, you know, for every article you publish, you would get, you know, few thousand euros a year extra. And if you think of this at the level of the institute, you know, we are talking about significant resources. Mm, yeah, so I have to admit, I myself was not fully aware of the scale of this issue until this brought it to my attention. And so I then dived into it and went through it with Josh and Emma on what will be a previous episode now. So, well, as a PhD student, I can speak from the other side of this. I'm, I've submitted my first paper to one of these big name journals mm. because yeah. I need that quality step Absolutely. to be able to get up the ladder. Absolutely, yeah. So the take-home message from this then, it's the big name academics, those who have the power to vote with their feet and who can safely do so without harming their careers should throw their weight behind this. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, even though I say we have to abolish or maybe it would more kind of abandon, you know, the, the corporate publishing model, we also have to do it in a way that doesn't destroy young researchers' careers. You know, so to say, oh, everybody co-publishing this, you know, I, I think everything would eventually be in, in these overlay journals. But to say, oh, you know, immediately everybody go publishing these overlay journals, uh, it's not fair. It's especially not fair to young researchers. Mm. I have one last question with mm -hmm. hopefully a little bit of nuance behind it. Mm -hmm. Because there are publishers out there who aren't necessarily private corporations like yes. Elsevier. Yeah. Because, well, in this odd and end, the specific example I cited was Munras. Yeah. So that's the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Right. So that publishing arm is by a university. It's Oxford mm. University Press. Yes. So it's it's the journal of a specific society mm. rather than a private entity. Do you feel that they would survive under this new model? Mm. And if so, what would they look like in the future? Yeah. So this is an important point. Uh, so let me first of all say that the fact that not all respected publishers are corporate publishers doesn't really change the overall picture. 
Because even if we would only switch away from corporate publishers and, uh, you know, keep the scientific societies the same, the overall amount of sales would be about the same because the corporate, because most of the publishing is corporate publishing. But if we look at the societies, uh, so of course, again, we have a problem. Uh, okay. I may say that we have a problem of transition, of being in a transition era is that traditionally these societies, so these journals have, have served two functions for these societies. First of all, of course, they have helped to spread scientific knowledge and, you know, advanced science. Yes. And that has really, and I think we can say that is really, the, that has been, and I think that should be their main task. And second, of course, they have generated uh, revenue for these societies, which is, of course, needed. I mean, the societies don't run on nothing. At an earlier stage... When, you know, journals were published on paper and when, you know, you couldn't distribute things almost for free on the internet, mm. uh, these two goals supported each other. But now in this transition era, uh, the situation is, if I may use this term, somewhat perverse in the sense that now uh, scientific societies are sustaining their operations by charging large fees for these journals, thus impeding in fact, the advance of science. Mm, by putting up those barriers to yes, access. Yes, yes. So, uh, so I would say that we have to develop a new funding model for the societies to the extent that the societies are dependent on, on, on the journals that both generates revenue for the societies and advances or at least does not hinder science. And, uh, and I think this is a real challenge. Mm. So, yeah, so in this case, there are competing interests that need to be balanced here because yes. obviously the societies themselves do important work. It'd be a terrible shame if they were lost. Absolutely. Mm. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't have an immediate answer to that question off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, I think this is something that really needs to be addressed uh, society by society. You see, so, so um, what kind of different kinds of ways they have of generating revenue, how big a part is the journal publishing and so on. So I don't think there are any one-size-fits-all answers there. Yeah. So we're in agreement that change does need to come and it won't happen overnight, unfortunately. Yeah, it's so it's true. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not going to happen unless people actively work for it. Because, you know, this open, already in the 1990s, uh, you know, librarians complained that this, those rising subscription prices are doomsday machine. Because as it has become cheaper to produce these journals, the prices have gone up and the situation has become more difficult. So, uh, in this, as in many other things, there is no, nothing, things don't change by themselves. And often when say, oh, it's difficult, it doesn't happen overnight, this is used as an excuse for inaction and thinking that the problem would solve itself. Unfortunately, we have seen now from experience that this is not true. Mm. So it, it will keep getting worse unless we get up and actually do something yes. about it. Yes. So I feel I may have taken up a little too much of your time this afternoon. So maybe we should bring things to an end here. Thanks for having me. So, well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for that, Jake. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, over to you now. What odd and end have you brought to the table today? So, I thought I'd uh, shake things up a bit today. Ooh. And uh, we're going to be talking about the Mars quake. Oh, oh that, was, that, was, that was so bad. So bad. <laughs> I, d I don't know what... Wait, is it, is it the appropriate thing to say? So, so, basically, there's been an earthquake, but on Mars. 
So, does Earth, does Earthquake stem from the planet name, or does it stem from the fact that it's Earth? I don't know. I, Ma- Marsquake works. I'm, I'm, I was just groaning at your use of <laughs> Shake It Up. Okay, great. <laughs> so, essentially, there's been a Marsquake detected uh, by NASA's InSight lander. Uh, so, it was detected on April 6th, so that's uh, pretty recently, actually. So, this is hot off the press. Um, which is pretty exciting. So I think it's actually the, um, other than the Earth and the Moon, we've not actually measured seismic activity anywhere before. So it's, uh, pretty cool to have, uh, actually measured this on Mars so far away. So in Earth, most of the, um, actual sort of earthquakes are due to plate tectonic movements. Uh, whereas in the case of, say, the Moon, which doesn't have this sort of effect occurring, it can arise from sort of temperature shifts and gravitational stresses. Um, so it's quite curious to see what's actually going on in Mars's interior itself. So we've not actually done that much exploration of this before now. And um, it's it's an interesting sort of development that they've actually discovered that there's an earthquake, well, a Mars quake on Mars. Um, so it's it, it was kind of, um, there's not much known about uh, the sort of interior of Mars as much as there was there is of the exterior. So all of the exciting sort of recent findings have come from the Mars rover, for instance, which has done sort of uh the top level searches, um looking for like water and signs of life, etc. Uh whereas now we've kind of got this uh it's called InSight, the uh lander, um, which is looking for sort of seismic activity and uh, stuff that's actually going on underneath the surface of the planet. Um, which is pretty exciting. So what what does a Mars quake actually look like or feel like? If you were standing on Mars, would you be able to feel it? I'm not sure of what the level was, so I don't think I actually mentioned that. But basically, I think the tremors are a lot less than you'd expect from Earth, say with the plate tectonics, which give you really sort of... They can, well, can give you pretty violent earthquakes that you'll feel... Um, or will destroy buildings, etc., etc. Whereas I think on Mars it's a lot, um, from the sounds of things, it's a lot, uh, lower level. Um, so, like, they have sort of measured a bit of sort of a few vibrations up until now, but they've never had, a, like, a significant enough vibration to be able to de- categorize it as a Mars quake. Um, I did quote marks there, by the way. It's probably not the best thing for a podcast. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, um, so yeah, I think it's actually a lot weaker than you'd uh, expect on Earth, let's say. So wh- whether you'd feel it yourself is uh, probably probably not, but it's interesting that uh, they've actually managed to uh, measure this using this sort of uh, seismic uh, or seismometer um, on their uh, InSight mission. How long have we had instruments on Mars that could detect this? Uh, and this being the first time... Is that interesting that we haven't seen it in any measurable way yet? I mean, before this. Uh, so actually, this lander only uh, dropped down on sort of November 26th in 2018. Uh, so we've not actually had a sort of seismometer up there for long. So I don't know if it's actually that surprising. So, so, so as I was saying before, the sort of rovers have kind of gone up to look for, say, water or to look at sort of the planetary surface and how that's made up. Um, so I guess it's not overly surprising we've not noticed it before, um, because it's sort of more of a more recent thing where we're starting to look at what's going on under the surface. And I guess uh, maybe longer term, this is uh, 
useful thing to know about if we're planning on colonising eventually, if Musk gets his way. So, th- so they know for sure that this was a Mars quake and wasn't, say, an int- in. So, do they know for certain that this was a Mars quake and wasn't, say, for example, an instrumental effect? So, um, the rover's arm just got a bit juddery ju- and started shaking. Uh, so, I think they've got a pretty decent um, sort of grasp of their systematics and things. So, so as far as I'm aware, they're pretty certain this one's a uh, an actual Mars quake. So, they've they've had a they have measured sort of what they've called ambiguous vibrations before, um, but they never had sort of a large enough effect that they could actually categorise them as a Mars quake, whereas in this particular instance it was sort of large enough that they think within their sort of capabilities they can say for certain it's a Mars quake. But of course, with it being the only instrument up there, it's, you know, you can't like verify this with anything else. It's not like on Earth where there's lots of different uh, things looking for seismic activity. So, um, but, but it's an interesting discovery all the same, or an interesting detection. <laughs> Yeah, there's just something about Mars and finding new things about Mars that I think just really captures the imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's got a sort of thing about Mars. I suppose it's it's one of the planets that you can actually see pretty easily yourself. Um, mm. And uh, the fact that everyone's talking about, oh, well, we could potentially uh, move there one day. I think everyone just gets really excited, don't they? It's all the sort of the Martian-esque uh, thing, sort of like the film uh, that Matt Damon's in, for instance, where it's all like, oh, could we go cultivate things on Mars? Potatoes. Right. Exactly. Lots of potatoes. So many potatoes. Potatoes all the way down. Hey, I really wouldn't mind, actually, if I just had to eat potatoes for the rest of my life, because they, they, they are... I, I do enjoy them as a food. <laughs> chips, you know. Exactly. Who doesn't love chips? Um, anyway, moving, moving back uh, to something a little bit more back on topic. Uh, Shankar, what have you got for us today? Right, so this is something that came out on the 21st of March, where the Large Hadron Collider, or as people call it, the LHC, saw for the first time CP violation in a new particle called the D0 meson. Just for some jargon busting, what's CP violation? Right, so I was expecting this. This sort of (laughs) stuff is usually not what astronomy or astronomers talk about. So let me explain what all of those words actually mean. So to start with, a symmetry is something that involves a change in nature that leaves the laws of physics unchanged. So in this case, CP symmetry is a particular kind of symmetry where if you swap any given particle with its antiparticle, the laws of physics do not change. Now, this is interesting because today in the universe, we see a massive difference in the amount of particles versus the amount of antiparticles. Yeah, we don't really see any antiparticles as far as I'm aware, right? Yes, exactly. And this is puzzling because, well, in theory, we should have an equal amount of both. Uh, in the early universe. So something must have happened where all the antiparticles sort of disappeared or wiped out in some way. Maybe they had an argument with the uncle particles. Maybe. <laughs> well, we'll never know. <laughs> anyway, the point is, though, that we would like to understand why there is this this difference. And any 
sort of violation of any symmetry, especially CP symmetry, uh, will help us explain this this effect. And so far, the we, what we have seen is that there is CP violation, but there isn't anywhere near enough of it to explain the the, the difference in the amount of particles versus the amount of antiparticles. And this discovery sort of opens the door for more exploration uh, into this this idea that, hey, maybe early in the universe there was some effect that made antiparticles in some way special in that if you swapped a particle with an antiparticle, something changed and made that antiparticle go away. And so this is very exciting because since now TLHC has seen CP violation in a new kind of particle uh, that we didn't know or we didn't know for sure had CP violation in the first place, uh, we could perhaps, if we kept looking, find enough uh, in the standard model of particle physics that can explain this. Or maybe we'd find new physics that nobody has come up with yet uh, that can that can explain why all of us aren't made of fancy antiparticles. So... Uh... What sort of energy scales are we like requiring here to sort of examine these things? Because of course, like we've got the LHC, which is great and all, but early universe is what you were talking about, right? And of course, the early universe had crazy energy scales, you know, just after the Big Bang, etc. So, is it is, is there sort of a limit on what we'd actually be able to probe? And maybe we can't, maybe we can't explain these things fully because we can't actually probe the energy scale we need to. Right. So this this violation, this new d- detection is actually at quite a large energy. And that is because this CP violation is known to be really, really weak. Uh, and so we do need to go to quite high energies to actually detect these things, which means bigger and bigger and bigger particle accelerators. Another problem is that we don't know how to exactly pin down how strong these things are from theoretical calculations. And so it turns out that we have to look uh, over a large span of energies as well uh, to try and find this. So there are quite a lot of problems uh, in in trying to actually do this science uh, in a systematic way. Uh, If that makes things worse, that's just something we have to live with, unfortunately. (laughs) So what was the particle actually called that they've seen this in? Uh, So this is called the D0 meson, uh, and it contains uh, a combination of quarks, which I think is the charm charm quark and the charm anti-quark. And this is the first time they're seeing CP violation in the charm sector. Uh, These are names that particle physicists come up with there's, Which, some, there's some great names yeah, for the class. Yeah, I love exceptional, it. exceptional. They're also called flavors, yeah. right? Yeah, they have they have all sorts. There are there's a there's a there's a there's a particle that's called strange. There's one called bottom. So yeah. Uh, so we do have a sense of humor as scientists, don't worry. We, yeah, yeah. We can all, be funny. Or lack thereof. <laughs> Depends on, I suppose, who's looking or who who's talking about so, it. It it sounds as though basically that the LHC's found one which is sort of on the cusp of being too difficult to find and maybe getting ones which are even 
weaker effects it's going to be really hard to do with a particle accelerator or certainly the particle accelerators we currently have so maybe uh maybe moving forward as, as, as i think there's people looking at cp violation uh, through the cmb in uh, sort of inflation um inflationary models uh, so maybe that maybe that's the way forward maybe we need to go back to astrophysics and start looking at the universe as a whole well it would it would it would give us something that we can actually talk about more in the jodcast <laughs> i suppose but uh, maybe i mean i certainly hope so because it would it means that um, it would give us more stuff to do uh, in the department. That's definitely what I want. I'd, I'd like to get a job at the end of my PhD. So. <laughs> Tell me all. You and everyone else. But yeah, I mean, it would be really interesting if we actually saw an effect like this in the CMB because that would be an independent probe of the same effect, which is always good science, uh, looking for things in two different places and seeing the same, uh, the same effect. Uh, please tell my supervisor I said this because <laughs> I want him to know I know how to do science but anyway uh, the point is that yes it would be really interesting if uh, the future CMB telescopes actually are sensitive enough to, to detect CP violation in the CMB uh, I think the problem is though that there are so many inflationary models uh, that we have to account for but it, w- it, w- it is very exciting um, and in fact, this this discovery itself, uh, it's it's at a statistical significance that's large enough for us to be interested. But um, the actual amplitude, so the actual amount uh, of CP violation that they saw is on the sort of the upper end of the standard model prediction. And apparently theorists aren't sure whether or not this is new physics or whether it's just a standard model. Because, as I said before, theoretical calculations are quite hard to do for a quark of this mass. So we don't know whether this is actually new physics or not. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, it's it's on the cusp of being groundbreaking. Then. Yeah, on the cusp of, exactly. Yeah, I actually had, actually had a chance to, to talk to one of the people uh, who works on this collaboration. Uh, so... She told me that uh, the theorists are disagreeing with each other, as they often tend to do. Uh, I'm sure you know, uh, but it's because specifically because this this quark mass is particularly difficult uh, for us. But hopefully, uh, in future, when when theoretical calculations can get more accurate, we can we can actually check whether this is new physics or not. And if it is, then woohoo, <laughs> new physics. <laughs> So, like with the black hole image, um, it was a fuzzy orange ring, and some people thought it was the most amazing thing in the world, um, and some people were a little bit disappointed because, obviously, for a while we've had simulations and stuff, and and you know you can you can simulate this to, to very great detail. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the camp of wow, this is amazing because of the, just the, the technology that's had to go into that. I'm sure we've discussed well, it's been discussed on the broadcast before, but. That that pretty much was exactly what we were expecting. In fact, I think I'd seen that doesn't a sim- happen often. So yeah. That's good. <laughs> so so sometimes it is nice to be validated, right? The theories that we currently have are right, and we see exactly what we expect, and not like, oh, that's great, we we can do science. Um, but then it is also sometimes exciting, I guess, to see something that we weren't expecting, and we have to go back to the drawing board and think, oh, what what new physics do we need to think about? Is there anything we've missed here? So two two sides of science, I think, and they're both great. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's an interesting debate about that. So, like, a lot of people were throwing about the sort of Nobel Prize words about whether that black hole would get that. But the interesting thing is, is sort of Nobel Prizes, for instance, are supposed to sort of be celebrating work which is sort of pioneering and is going to sort of make an impact in the future as well. Whereas this sort of black hole image that's been taken is almost kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's a little bit because, as I said, it's, it, oh, as you said, I should say, um, it is what was expected and it's kind of just gone, cool, this this shows that... It, it, I mean, it's showing a really decent effect and it's showing that we're right and it's showing that this is how, you know, the black holes work, but it, it's like, it's not... It's not it's almost not, like, pushing anything forward. On the other hand, I would argue that even if it is just confirming science we already know the technology and the software that went into making that image you know the the uh, the concept of vlbi so very long baseline interferometry you know linking up telescopes all around the world i mean it's a technique that we've been doing in radio astronomy for a fair few years now um but just to get it to the point and really pushing the limit that the event horizon telescope people pushed it to to get this image i i would argue that 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 is even though it's confirming science that we have theorised for a very long time, just the the fact that we are now in a, a position where we can actually collect that data and actually put that data together to make that image, I, I still, I would argue that that is groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I would agree with that because I think people, as you said before, some people were very happy, were very excited with that image and some people were sort of disappointed that it's just, it's just an orange blob uh, in the sky. But... I think people don't realize that. I mean, this is an incredible sort of a demonstration of what VLBI can do. And and when people ask me about it, I, I, I say that, yes, it confirms everything that we know about a black hole. But also, it's like taking a picture of an orange in the moon from the Earth. right? And that's, that's just insane. Uh, me talking about that uh, itself makes it sound ridiculous. But the fact that we've done something like that, uh, the, you know, we've actually managed to get the resolution to do something like that um, is, I think, quite remarkable. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of scientists have to work together to make this happen. And this is, a, this is something that, that, that obviously needs to happen in more and more as we, as we move towards, uh, you know, these larger collaborations of, of things like, like the Square Kilometre Array and, and, and so many more. So uh, I think there are lots of things that are happening that makes this this black hole image uh, exciting. That's not something that you can see in the image itself, but something that sort of uh, we can appreciate nonetheless. Yeah, kind so, of behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. absolutely. So, so I think we are at sort of we are approaching a time when new observations and new s- sort of uh, techniques are being accessible. Uh, are being made as accessible uh, to us. So I think, personally, I'm very excited uh, about that. Cool. Well, it's a really interesting discovery, and it'll be interesting to see what the Nobel Committee thinks, I think, <laughs> in the future. So, speaking of some more cutting-edge science, um, here is my odd and end. Um, we found hair. Hair? <laughs> hair! I'm not just shrugging my shoulders and going here. Um, we, we have found um, something called HeH+, or a helium hydride ion, um, which is a helium atom and a hydrogen's nucleus, so basically a proton stuck together. And this is a really significant discovery, as we think that it's the first compound that was ever created in the universe. 
that's massively exciting. So we're talking like just after um, sort of Big Bang music since this sort of thing. So just just really really early times here. Well, exactly. Yeah. So in the in the Big Bang, so um, there was variations of hydrogen, helium, and lithium produced. So nuclei with only one, two, or three protons, but nothing bigger than that. So all, all the other elements that we encounter in the universe today were produced later, for example, in stellar fusion or supernova explosions. So in the beginning, um, there was basically hydrogen, helium, and a little tiny amount of lithium. So you would expect the first compound to form, so um, two or uh, more different nuclei bonded together, um, you would expect... Um, that to be made up of one of these first three elements and as I said because lithium was so much rarer you would expect this compound to be the combination of hydrogen and helium and this is a compound that has been known about for quite a while it was produced on earth back in um, 1925 as a paper by Hodgson Lund that describes that and since the 1970s um, there's been speculation that it might have been found astronomically uh, but up until now it has it evaded detection a, a significant yes we have definitely found it so are we talking that this one this sort of detection they've made is of this molecule that has come from before say last scattering occurred so is, is it actually a molecule that was part of that sort of soup of ionic particles and photons which were flying around off each other um so what what this what they did was they looked at a planetary nebula and in a lot of cases um, we think that planetary nebulae could mimic some of the properties of the early universe um, so this this isn't a kind of uh, we've not found a trace of you know, the very earliest molecules, we found the earliest type of molecule mm-hmm. in space, because up until this point, we'd only created it in the lab, and we didn't know for certain if they had managed to, you know, we didn't know for certain if um, it was even able to form naturally in space. So just the fact that we've, um, just the fact that this team has found this uh, molecule in space shows that it is capable of being formed in space. So we expect it to be the first Molecule um, yeah, the first, the first one to have been found. Yes, yeah. Um, so it's even though it's a very simple compound. So as I said, it's a helium atom and a hydrogen nucleus, so a, a proton, um, coming together to form an iron. Um, even though it's quite simple, it's really not that simple to detect its spectrum um, coming from space, um, because the the light that it gives off is um, blocked by the Earth's atmosphere. Um, which is a running theme in astronomy. You know, most wavelengths that we observe are actually blocked by the Earth's atmosphere. You know, we've got optical and some radio wavelengths getting through to the ground. Um, but on the whole, if you're wanting to observe light from space, um, you're wanting to try and get a high up above the atmosphere as possible. So we've got our, you know, all our lovely array of space telescopes. That, balloons, uh, lots of balloons. Weather balloons, exactly. <laughs> Go, going up to the top of a mountain, for example, to put a telescope on there. That's all in an attempt to get as far up out the atmosphere as possible. And there's another way of doing that. Telescope on a plane. That's exciting. Yes. Um, so the SOFIA, which is the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, um, that, that is literally an observatory on a plane. And uh, because a lot of infrared is, is, again, blocked by the atmosphere, by taking the plane up into the stratosphere, it's it's getting up past the, the, the atmosphere that is blocking the infrared. So you can start to do infrared observations um, of, of space. Since this is uh, infrared... And we've got 
I mean, in the works, uh, the James Webb Telescope, it should be able to see uh, many more uh, spectra of, of molecules like, heh, uh, you know, once it's been launched. So, uh, would that is that something that people are talking about? Um, that's a good question. So they don't mention JWST in the the paper. So there's a there's a paper in um, Nature Letters. Um, it's Gustav et al. is is who are reporting this detection. They 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 don't meant it's quite a short paper. But so they I don't think they speculate too much on on the future of these kind of observations. Um, the main thing that they emphasise the reason why they were able to make this observation um, was because of the really high frequency um, resolution um, of the telescope. So. Basically, um, what they're looking for is um, a particular signature, a particular frequency. So you see a spectrum and you see a particular rise and fall at a certain part of the spectrum. And that that's the signature of there being a certain kind of molecule there. And previously, instruments that had been used to look for helium hydride just didn't have enough spectral resolution. So the line was blurred with another nearby spectral line. So they couldn't for sure say that it was one or the other, just that it was some combination. They didn't didn't have any independent measurements of this line. So the main thing that is needed, actually, is, is the really good spectral resolution. So kind of really high frequency resolution. And I, I, if I'm honest, I don't know what the specs are for JWST, um, but that will be the important thing for it, is if it, if it has a high frequency resolution. So as I said, um, they looked at a planetary nebula. The planetary nebula that they looked at is NGC 7027, and it's um, 3,000 light years from Earth in the constellation of Cygnus. So it's actually something that you could go out to see um, if you wanted to. Um, it's one of the smallest planetary nebula, actually. It's only about a tenth the size of, of typical, um, but it is one of the most extensively studied. Um, in a six-inch telescope, um, at around um, 50 times magnification, it appears as a relatively bright bluish star. And at higher magnification, so around 180 times magnification, um, you can start to kind of distinguish its shape. It's been called things like the gummy bear nebula mm. um, from its shape. So it's got, got an interesting structure to it. So astronomers at home listening to this could just go look at this themselves exactly, and might yeah. already have done. Uh, something I, I always enjoy doing as someone who both enjoys doing kind of um, amateur optical astronomy and doing astrophysics as my day job it's always really cool to study something and then be able to just go out into your back garden and look at it mm-hmm. yourself so this this is i think quite a, a big observing challenge um it's, it's i don't think it's particularly high on the top 10 nebula to observe um <laughs> as i said it, it's quite small um so i don't i've never actually looked at it myself but from what i what i've seen it's not necessarily the most interesting object to look at but i think it's made all the more interesting to know that that was where the first helium hydride um astronomical detection was made so is this in North, south, or I, I don't. I'm not really familiar with the naming conventions of uh, of like the nebulae or galaxies, really. Yes, it is. It's in the, it's in the constellation of Cygnus. Um, so um, it, it is actually visible from the northern hemisphere at the okay. moment. Uh, it's currently visible all night in the northeastern sky, and it's reasonably near the bright star Deneb. Um, if, if you are interested in observing it, then um, I, I'm, you can look up the exact coordinates online. I don't have them to hand. Um, but this does lead me on to our next section, um, where Ian Morrison will be telling us what we can observe in this month's night sky. 
the night sky for May 2019. As darkness falls, a bit later than it used to be, Castor and Pollux in Gemini are setting above the western horizon. Towards the southwest is seen the constellation of Leo the Lion, with a bright star Regulus, its front haunches. To the rear of Leo is a wonderful region of the sky when seen through a telescope. It's called the Realm of the Galaxies, and it's where the galaxy M87 exists, one of the largest galaxies in the observable universe. And of course, you may well have seen the image of the, quotes black hole in the last couple of weeks or so. Obviously, you don't see the black hole. It doesn't emit any light or radiation. There's been some argument about what you do see. For a while, I thought it might be an accretion disk around it. But in fact, that's not bright enough. As a result of the black hole, there's a jet which produces synchrotron radiation that is emitted from the regions of the black hole. And I believe, as with my colleagues here at Jodrell Bank, that what we are seeing is what's called an Einstein ring. Some of the energy of that synchrotron emission is being formed into a circle, a halo, if you like, around the shadow of the black hole. Well, the brightest star coming towards the south after sunset is Arcturus at the bottom of the constellation of Bootes. And high overhead is the plough, an asterism, which is part of the constellation Ursa Major. There's some nice galaxies in that region too, and other objects to look at with a small telescope. Rising over in the east and getting higher as the night progresses are the three constellations of Lyra with its bright star Vega, of Cygnus with its bright star Deneb, and Aquila with its bright star Altair. And those three stars make up what is called the Summer Triangle. And they will become increasingly obvious as the summer progresses. Well, what about the planets this month? Well, Jupiter starts the month shining at magnitude minus 2.5, increasing slightly to minus 2.6 as the month progresses. And of course, at the same time, its angular size increases from 43 to 46 arc seconds. At the start of May, it rises around midnight, so it'll be due south around 3am or so, whilst at the month's end, it rises at about 9.30, and we're due south at about 01.30, and those are universal times. That's the time that astronomers keep. Sadly, it's heading towards the southernmost part of the ecliptic, and currently lies in the southern part of Ophiuchus, just above Scorpius. So, as it crosses the meridian due south, it will only have an elevation of about 14 degrees. It lies just above the centre of our Milky Way. At this low elevation, atmospheric dispersion will thus take its toll. And a device called an atmospheric dispersion corrector will greatly help to improve our views of the giant planet. Saturn, shining with a magnitude increasing from plus 0.5 to plus 0.3 during the month, rises around midnight during the month, so crosses the meridian just before dawn. Its disk is about 18 arc seconds across, and the rings which are still nicely tilted to the line of sight, spanning some 40 arc seconds across. Morning twilight is the best time to observe it, but sadly now in Sagittarius, and lying on the southern side of the Milky Way, 
It's at the very lowest part of the ecliptic and will only reach an elevation of around 10 degrees or so, which depends, of course, on where you live in the UK. As with Jupiter, an atmospheric dispersion corrector will help improve our view. Mercury passes through superior conjunction, that's behind the Sun, on May the 21st, and will only be visible low in the west northwest on the last few days of the month. So one will need a very low horizon, and binoculars could well be needed to reduce the sun's background glare. But please, of course, do not use them until after the sun has set. Mars, though fading from plus 1.6 to plus 1.8 magnitudes during the month, is still visible in Taurus in the southwestern sky after sunset, lying about halfway between Betelgeuse in Orion and Capella in Auriga. It sets some three hours after the sun at the start of May, with an elevation as darkness falls of about 20 degrees, but less than two and a half hours by month's end. Its angular size is falling from 4.2 to less than four arc seconds during the month, so sadly there'll be no details to see on its salmon pink surface. And finally Venus. Venus has a magnitude of about minus 3.8 in May, whilst its angular size reduces from 11.5 to 10.8 arc seconds as it moves away from the Earth. However, at the same time, the percentage illuminated disk, that's called its phase, increases from 88 to 92%. The two effects cancel out, and that's why the brightness remains constant at 3.8 magnitudes. It rises about an hour before the sun, but its elevation is only 4 degrees at sunrise, so a very low horizon in the east is required, and again binoculars may well be needed to spot it through the sun's glare. But of course, again, do not please use them after the sun has risen. Well, finally, some highlights. On May the 7th, after sunset, Mars lies above a very thin crescent moon. So you need a good low horizon looking towards the west. If so, if it's clear, one should be able to spot Mars lying halfway between Betelgeuse and Capella, as I said, but above a very thin crescent moon. That's quite a tricky observation, I think. On May the 12th, in the evening, the moon lies in Leo, lying very close to its bright star, Regulus. On May the 19th, in the early evening, if it's clear, one should be able to spot Mars lying just above M35 in Gemini. So looking west and using binoculars or a small telescope, you might be able to spot Mars lying just above the open cluster M35 in Gemini. This is probably about the last chance to see Mars at the very end of its apparition. On May the 20th, around midnight, Jupiter will lie over to the right of a waning gibbous moon. And on May the 23rd, in the early morning, Saturn will lie up to the right, again, of a waning gibbous moon, but with a thinner phase. Finally, on May the 28th, around midnight, there's a chance to spot Asteroid 1 Ceres. It's at its closest approach to the Earth at about that time, lying over to the right of Jupiter. It will have a magnitude of 7, 
so binoculars should enable you to spot it. And the chart I provide on the night sky page, just Google night sky jodrell, will help you to find it. A planetarium program, such as the free program Stellarium, will show you its position in the days before and after its closest approach. Ceres is the largest of the minor planets and is now classified as a dwarf planet. I like the name minor planet rather than asteroid because I got one named after me and I'd much rather be a minor planet than an asteroid. Anyway, I know the lights are not as long as they have been. I do hope you have a chance to see some nice things in the heavens this month. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here is Haritina Mogosanu and Samuel Lesky with the night sky where you are. The rise of the galaxy. Get out from New Zealand. Hi, everyone. We're here at Space Place at Cutter Observatory holding again galactic conversations from the heart of Wellington in the Southern Hemisphere with the music of the amazing Rian Sheehan, our Wellingtonian star composer. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. And I'm Samuel Lesky. Tonight we have a very special guest, one of our own Milky Way Kiwi, from far across the Cook Strait and the Southern Alps, Lake Tekapo. Hi, I'm Holly. Hi, Holly. Welcome to the capital of New Zealand. What brings you here? Well, I'm on holiday. I've got a week off, so I'm spending some time up north. Well, if you've got a week, who's operating the telescope? Oh, we've got other people, don't worry. Excellent. (laughs) Well, it's great that you're here because we have some instructions for looking up. And in your professional opinion, how does the Wellington night sky compare to the Lake Tekapo night sky? I imagine there's not much difference. Uh, We're missing out on some of the fainter things up here, but it's not too bad. This month we're going to talk a little bit about the month of May, we're going to look at what the sun is up to, what's the Milky Way doing, what's Orion and Scorpius doing, we we talk a bit about the brightest stars visible, and finally we are going to put out there some of our favorite binocular and telescope objects, circumpolar objects and planets. A little bit about May. May is the fifth month of the year in the Julian and Gregorian calendars and is a month of spring in the Northern Hemisphere, and it is autumn in the Southern Hemisphere. It is named after the Greek goddess Maya, or Roman goddess of fertility, Bonadea. In Old English, Maius, Latin name Maius, Mensis, month of Maya. Old French, Mai. Maya was one of the Pleiades as well, and the mother of Hermes. Maya is the daughter of Atlas and Pleione, the Oceanid, and it's the oldest of the seven Pleiades. Because they were daughters of Atlas, they were also called the Atlantids. For the Romans, Maya embodied the concept of growth, as her name was thought to be related to the comparative adjective Maius, mayor, larger, greater. And there is a plant, a a flower, the lily of the valley, it's called in Latin and scientific name Convalaria Maialis. And it is one of my favourite flowers, and it is named after after the m- month of May. So what's the sun up to? The sun rises from 7 to 7.30 throughout the month, and sets from around 5.30 to 5pm. Beautiful, long nights are here, the astronomer's dream. In May, the sun transits the first the, the zodiacal constellations of the ram, which of course doesn't look anything like a ram in this part of the world, because no, it's, it like it's upside down. <laughs> well, yeah, it doesn't look like a ram anyway. And after the 14th of May is in Taurus. 
This means that Scorpius is on the other side of the zodiacal wheel and visible starting after sunset. Alright, so the Milky Way, we are now looking towards the centre of our Milky Way, which rises up southeast just after sunset and reaches the meridian around after 3am at the beginning of the month and towards 2am towards the end of the month. Bright stars in the Milky Way. Starting in the west after sunset is Betelgeuse, then zigzag to the north is Procyon, the little dog alpha star. Zigzagging again is Sirius, and then Adhara in the big dog, and Evior in Vela, the beautiful stars of the Southern Cross, the two pointers Alpha and Beta Centauri, then later on the night after the centre of the Milky Way rises, Antares and Scorpius, Nungi, Sagittarius, and last but not least, after midnight, Altair and Vega, grazing the northern horizon. Orion is very close to Taurus and it will sink further towards the horizon as the month progresses. Enjoy it while it lasts for the rest of this month. Bright stars on the ecliptic. In Leo we have Regulus, which is extremely close to the ecliptic. Then Spica, the blue giant in Virgo. Zubinel Genubi, another star grazing... Zubinel what? Zubinel Genubi. Right. Another star grazing the ecliptic. And Zubin Eshamali, just beneath it. Zubinel Genubi... Is that Zuba's brother? <laughs> Zubinel Genubi actually means the northern claw. And Zubin Eshamali means the southern claw. And I hope I got this right. Because one is to the north and one is to the south. It's alluding anyway. that these two stars <laughs> have been the claws of Scorpius before they were chopped off and turned into the current constellation of Libra by Caesar, the emperor. They're followed by Antares, which is the last very bright star visible on the ecliptic before sunrise. Circumpolar objects to New Zealand, the beautiful southern cross and the pointers are high in the sky. Garcrooks and Arcrooks are crossing the meridian about 10pm at the beginning of the month and just after 8pm at the end of it. Omega Centauri is in a great position to observe, as well as Musca, Vela, Carina and the Diamond Cross, the False Cross and the Large Magellanic Cloud and of course the big giant spider in the middle, the Tarantula Nebula. Yeah, which kind of doesn't really look like a spider, but yeah, neither I... does the ram in Aries, does it? <laughs> it does look like a spider, it looks like a Tarantula. Yeah, with broken legs. Binoculars come in many shapes and forms. The great size for stargazing are little 7x50s or 10x50s. The first number is a measure of power. It means how much these binoculars magnify. In this case, 7 for the 7x50s and 10 for the 10x50s. The second number is the diameter of the objective, the big hunk of glass at the other end. Then that's in millimetres. So for the 10x50s, that's 50mm size of the lens. I really like binoculars. They're my favorite aids to observing the night sky because they're light. You can take them easily with you on trips. They don't really require assembly and disassembly, no polar alignment. And visually are better than telescopes because you use both eyes. Sometimes you might need a tripod, but that can be easily arranged. With a tripod attached, they are truly magnificent. Comets and some of open star clusters are sometimes better observed with binoculars. We have two eyes, so binocular views are more spectacular in many regards than telescopes because our brains interpret what we see. Binoculars give depth of view as they engage both eyes in the process. There are a few great objects that you could admire in binoculars. On the ecliptic is M44, the beehive cluster. <laughs> it's an open cluster in Cancer, known as the beehive, because it looks like a swarm of bees. Or the presepi. It's really fuzzy. 
<laughs> when you look at it with the naked eye. And binoculars reveal a beautiful lace of stars. Precipes. <laughs> are as far as 577 light years away and estimated to be about 730 million years old with an average magnitude of 3.5, which is not bad. You should be able to see them. And you can see the naked eye, just. Just. Yeah. If you use your averted vision, yeah. you can. And cancer is actually quite a dim... And if you're not in one constellation, yeah. Yeah. well, if, actually, if from Tekapo, you, you can see them in Tekapo. <laughs> you probably count the individual star. Also, in Cancer is M37, is another open cluster and one of the oldest known, almost 3.2 billion years old. Close to the area south of the triangle that marks Leo's hips, M65, M66, and NGC 3628 are there, and these would be visible depending on the size of your binoculars. They're also known as the Leo triplet. Also in Leo, M105 is a gorgeous elliptical galaxy. Last but not least, M96, another galaxy in Leo, lies at about 35 million light years away. So you can get a map and have a look for all these objects. Or if anything, everything else fails, just simply take your binoculars and browse the Milky Way from one edge to the other. You might not figure out exactly which objects you're looking at, but you would definitely find some amazing sights, especially in the region close to Carina, where you will find, and write these down, IC2602, NGC31114, NGC353, NGC2516. <laughs> and they're all open clusters. <laughs> then in Crux, there's NGC4755, which of course is the dual box cluster. And it's another open cluster that's really beautiful. And also NGC2451. Puppies. Puppies. And I see 2391 in Bella. Actually, when I came here to New Zealand, I didn't know where to look. And I just took my binoculars and I just looked everywhere. Mm. It was fun. And it's a great way to learn the night sky, mm. just by Definitely. finding stuff. All right, lower down, Omega Centauri. There is a globular cluster in Centaurus. And in Scorpius, there is the butterfly cluster M7, the open cluster. And NGC 6231, another open cluster there. So we just went outside and had a look with the telescope at some amazing circumpolar objects because we thought we wanted to tell you what's actually really happening in the sky. So these are all very high. And we look at these a lot because they're circumpolar, so we see these objects a lot, in fact, most of the year round in, in Wellington. Um, and, and that starts with the, the southern... Beehive Cluster, which took us a while to actually work out the name, but that's NGC2516, which is a beautiful cluster, really nice looking one. And then there's another really cool cluster, a bit like the Jewel Box, called Gem Cluster. And it's it hangs out near Etacarina Nebulas, which is probably why not a lot of people look at it, because they go for looking at the nebula instead of the cluster. But that's NGC3293, and it's a really beautiful cluster, not unlike Jewel Box. It's gorgeous. It's mm. got a, a red giant, it's got a few blue giants in there, mm. and the stars are aligned, right? Yeah, 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 that was first time I've seen the gem cluster, and I very much liked it. I could definitely make out the blues in it, which was nice. Yay. Also, there is the Southern Pleiades, IC2602, the Wishing Well cluster, NGC3532. Good old Jewel Box Cluster, NGC 4755. Omicron Velorum, IC2391. I really love this IC, kind of like, uh, what does this stand for? I don't know, but NGC is the New General Catalogue. Right. Which we happen to have a copy right here of the New General Catalogue from 1888. And we did check these manually. <laughs> well, uh, we checked one. Analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the Wishing Well 
cluster is a really good binocular object, and so is uh, Omicron Valorum. Southern Pleiades is, yeah, and Omega Centauri yeah. as well, but Southern Pleiades, because they're quite big, and Wishing Well's quite big, and so is Omicron Valorum. Southern Pleiades is mm. actually really cute, because they mm. look like a letter M. I mean, it, it is letter M on the side, or W on the side. And of course, we also look at Alpha Centauri and Acrox, and we look at those for the double stars, because there's uh, five arcs you can get between the two um, Alpha Centauri stars, A and B, and the same for, well, actually a bit less for Acrox, it's only four seconds. So it's a good way of testing the seeing, actually, because if you can, if you can't see the gap, then the seeing's really rubbish. Um, and if you can see nice, crisp, big gap, then you know the seeing's pretty good. And of course, we had a look at uh, tarantula, which um, is pretty tricky here in the light pollution, but we still got to see it. Good old NGC two o two zero seven zero. Now you might be wondering why we're saying all the NGC numbers and the IC numbers, because as Holly pointed out, if you've got a go-to, then that's what you have to type in. Yeah. Which is what we use over in Tekfa. We all have the go-to mounts, which uh, makes our life a bit easier. Fantastic. Wow. So what would you look at um, there? What, what What's a favorite object in Lake Tekfa for people to look at? Oh, we really like the Tarantula Nebula. That's always a go-to, along with Omega Centauri. That's always a favorite as well. Sculptor Galaxy at the moment, is it? Oh, Sombrero Galaxy is also mm. looking really good at wow. the moment. We've been looking yeah. at that a lot. Because you have big telescopes. We've got nice big telescopes. And then with the go-to mounts, it makes it very easy to find these galaxies. Yeah. And, and you look at the stars all night long. Yeah. So it's pretty amazing. Wow. So when does the last session end? What time? Um, we are finishing just after midnight, 1am at the moment. Wow. So you get to see the planets and things. Yeah, so we get Jupiter and Saturn coming up at the moment, which is great. Because Jupiter's rising, well, it just hits the horizon about 7.30 now, so by sort of 9 o'clock it's getting good height to it. Yeah, yeah, Jupiter's looking nice. Yeah, and Saturn's about two hours behind. So yeah, yeah, by by 1 o'clock it would be looking pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Very nice for the uh, occultation. Mm. (laughs) Did did you see the occultation? Yes, we did stay up and watch the occultation. We were very quickly trying to pack down all the telescopes that we weren't using so that we could watch the occultation. Oh, awesome. Um, Yeah. Did you take any pictures? Uh, I managed to get a couple of pictures. Other people, I think, got a bit better, but the seeing wasn't very good that night, mm. so it was a bit tricky. Saw Saturn disappear behind the moon, and then, wow, 70 minutes later, spot ditched it, pop out the other side. It was great. It's quite fast. Like, it tells you how fast the moon actually yeah. goes in the sky. You don't realise how fast the moon's moving until it's covering up Saturn. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, we had, like, oh, two or three people to a telescope. Oh, So we yeah. had to... It's a bit of... My turn. <laughs> Bit of <laughs> fighting over it. Over the way. Yeah, yeah. So what else is amazing? I mean, Lake Tekapa, I know, is like one of the most beautiful places in New Zealand to look at the stars. Where else do you guys do there? Oh, well, now that it's starting to get a bit cold, we're starting to dream of the ski season. The ice rink's just opened, again, for the winter season. So, yeah, it's starting to cool down a bit. Uh, which is very nice. So do you have people coming visiting in the winter time? Uh, once the ski season hits, we'll definitely see a lot more people through because mm. skiing um, around down south is just absolutely spectacular, amazing views. And you were saying you don't just have sessions in English, but you have in other languages too. Yeah, so we also do tours in Mandarin and Japanese every single night, along wow. with our English tours. And then every now and again, on a request, we can do something else as well. And we were talking about breaks and things and holidays, and um, <laughs> Holly was saying that the English guys get two days on Christmas, right? One day. One day, one day on Christmas. One day on it. Christmas, if we're lucky. <laughs> normally, it's asked, anyone wants, if, does anyone want to work on Christmas Day? You know, no one normally volunteers, but 
Yeah, from yeah. the English team. The uh, no one really wants to volunteer for Christmas. Team. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll be the few places hoping for bad weather on Christmas Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, we hope you come back to Wellington again. Now Holly also writes for Milky Way Kiwi. And so watch her online with her amazing account of what's going on there at Lake Tekapo, about the telescopes that are coming, about her life as an observer, her life as a researcher. So just keep an eye. And thanks for visiting. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I'll yeah. be back definitely. I love Wellington, and we love to have you here. So this is this is it for for the month of May. We're wrapping up here. Um, Hari Jinamo Goshano. I'm Sam Liski, and I'm Holly, and, and we're, we're Milky, Milky Way, Way Kiwi. Kiwi. <laughs> <laughs> at Space Place at Kara Observatory in New Zealand, Southern Hemisphere, Solar System, and Lake Tikapo. Clear, Clear skies. skies. Thanks for that, Haratina and Sam. Now on to the third pilot of George's Random Astronomical Object. Hello, and welcome to Episode 3 of George's Random Astronomical Object. This is a pilot for a new podcast that is being recorded as a segment for the Jodcast. Every episode... I run a random number generator to select random astronomical coordinates in the sky. I then search for an astronomical object near those coordinates using the Simbad astronomical database and spend a few minutes talking about the object found there and what makes it scientifically important. So now I will run the random number generator. And the random number generator has returned the coordinates of 16 hours, 57 minutes, 58.0 seconds right ascension, and negative 45 degrees, 56 minutes, 36 seconds declination. And this points to an object in the constellation Norma called NGC 6250. This is an open cluster sitting in the middle of the plane of the Milky Way galaxy. Now, it's not that surprising to find an open cluster in the middle of the Milky Way, as many open clusters consist of stars that formed recently, and stars form in locations close to the galactic plane. The cluster is at a distance of somewhere between about 1,000 and 1,200 parsecs, or 3,300 and 3,900 light-years, and has an age somewhere between 6 and 14 million years. This makes it a particularly young cluster. For reference, the Sun is about 5 billion years old. Because of its location, NGC 6250 is relatively heavily obscured by interstellar dust within the plane of the Milky Way 
and this makes it a nice target to look at for people who want to understand how dust obscuration affects starlight. Interstellar dust has several effects on starlight. It tends to absorb or scatter light, making everything look fainter, and the light that gets through the dust tends to look redder than usual. In fact, some of the observations of NGC 6250 specifically have been used to argue that this reddening effect becomes more severe in regions where the interstellar medium is unusually dense. The downside of this, though, is that the dust obscuration makes it very difficult to study the properties of the stars themselves, especially since the distribution of dust in front of the cluster seems to be uneven, and therefore seems to affect some stars more than others. In particular, the dust makes it very challenging to measure the correct distance and age for the cluster. Doing this depends on being able to construct diagrams of star colors versus their brightnesses. If the dust makes the stars look fainter than they should, the cluster will seem to be further away. And if the dust makes the stars look redder than they should, the stars will seem to be older than they actually are. This is why, when I gave the distance to the cluster, it was only known with an accuracy of about 20%, and when I gave the age of the cluster, the estimates varied by about a factor of two. This brings to mind the idea, though, that if people want to look much younger or much older, they just have to cover themselves unevenly with dust. Try it the next time you want to alter your age for your online dating profile. So that was NGC 6250. And if you're interested in the place on the Earth's surface that corresponds to the location of NGC 6250 in the sky, it is a place approximately halfway between Rapa Nui, also known as Easter Island, and Antarctica in the South Pacific. The audio was recorded and edited by George Bendo. The sound effects are from the Freesound Project. Thanks for listening. Thanks for that, George. George is going to try to turn this into a long-term podcast. If you like this segment, or if this sounds like something you would listen to, please send us feedback so we can let George know. And speaking of feedback, let's have a look at the feedback that you've been sending us. So, um, Niall, do you want to take us through the first email that we've got? Yes, so we've had feedback on the March uh, Odd and End segment on the future of scientific publishing and the archive. So, from John Murrell, following your comments on the archive server costs, the costs are detailed on the archive server at, and he's given us a link to that, um, and the various pages under that. One thing to note is that the 160 reviewers' costs are not included in the budget. There is also an interesting usage page. It appears roughly 10% of the downloads are from the academic addresses the vast majority being from commercial addresses. Interesting that Cambridge, in the UK, that is, is the biggest user, while Manchester is in 97th place. The big question in terms of free access is who is going to carry out the editorial duties and the peer review, and how is this going to be funded? At present, it seems that the um, archive reviewers are not funded by the service and the editorial control appears limited 
to authors fitting their work to the journal templates. One has to remember that a lot of the papers on the server are in their final published format following editorial and peer review input. So without this quality of the sorry. So without this, the quality of the papers could be expected to fall at least to the initial submission level if not lower. Yeah, I mean, very fair points being made there by John. Um I mean, we've spoken a lot about this on the broadcast before. Um, I know Jake's particularly passionate about this, but um, you know, they, they, these are you know, big questions that are being asked at the moment. You know, as we are moving into, well, I say, moving into an age where everything's on the internet. We've been in that for a while now, haven't we? But um, yeah, as as more and more things are becoming more and more reliant on the internet, you know, you don't really need to have paper published papers anymore, and so you know, an online system does to me seem like it's the way forward but i mean so john you generally the sort of journals which would print also have online systems as well right so Mm. like monras does nature does etc and i mean you were talking Um, about uh more i mean us moving into an era where everything's on the internet but i think uh and as you said of course we've already been in that for a while but i think what's more relevant is that more and more people are getting access to the internet mm-hmm. uh, with not with it not sort of just being the middle class or the upper middle class or the rich people anymore. It's like, you know, most people in most countries have access to a basic internet connection and so have access to an incredible amount of information. Um, so definitely a very sort of interesting points mm-hmm. uh, in, in what John has said. Yes, I, I honestly don't. I don't. I'm not overly au fait with how review process works on Archive itself. But from my experience, um, quite a lot of the papers on there are sort of put on by authors and then updated when they've submitted to an actual peer review journal and had it reviewed. And um, so quite often you'll see papers on there where you can tell it's not the finished job, and and you know that there's issues with it. So I, I don't know what sort of plan is going forward with that but yeah i mean so what one of the points that john raises is that um archive reviews are not funded by the service but a key thing to point out is i I don't know of any journal that pays for peer review so peer review is seen as kind of almost like community service if you're Mm -hmm. an academic you know um i've seen people say they'll do one in one out so for every first author paper that they submit to a journal they're happy to peer review um an article for that journal and you know, the, I mean, there's all again. We, we've been through this before on the podcast. There are all sorts of fi- of things of you know how how do you make the system better and you know, not put too much work on people who are doing it for free. And I don't know lots of big questions. I'm not sure if I've got the answers to them. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> uh, not. Uh, I mean, I've had people complain that you know their reviewers weren't nice to them. Uh, some other people compl- I mean, sort of not complain and say mm. that their reviews were really nice to them. And sort of at the moment, since as you as you said, we're not paying for peer review uh, to be done, then that means that we have to essentially rely on on all of the reviewers being completely, you know, objective. Mm. And it's a little bit luck of the draw, yeah. unfortunately. Mm. But unfortunately, I'm not yeah. sure how we're going to fix that because yeah. who's going to pay? Well, <laughs> I mean, so so our own, our interview in this episode, um, which. Um, I'm looking forward to listening to it. I've not listened to it yet, but um, Sixty Resonant talking about the future of um, scientific publishing. So, so maybe they're going to answer a few questions there. 
Um, maybe you've already heard them as of this episode. We don't record things in order. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we've had another email as well. Right. So this is from Manos Antonakis. And they said, uh, Dear team, I am a University of Manchester alumni. I did my postgrad in Jodhra Bank. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, back in the far, far away time of 2004. Uh, interesting conversation regarding publishing. Uh, so they said that indeed we have two approaches, open articles, um, archive, etc. And he says that uh, this particular approach has uh, some positives and some negatives, uh, where the positive is that the wealth of all bibliography at your fingertips uh, for very cheap uh, costs when, when anyone's doing research, and that the negatives are that the university does not get rewarded from great scientific papers that become popular but don't bring any money in. Um, and they said that the result is that it promotes a level playing field but does not reward excellence. While uh, paid articles, um, you know, with standard sort of peer-reviewed journals, um, the positives are that the university gain from breakthrough research articles and thus get rewarded for their efforts while the negatives are that the university have to pay a lot of money uh, for access, which means that only you know universities that are economically affluent can afford full access. Um, however, um, excellence, so good science, is adequately rewarded. Uh, so they think that the first system is more beneficial to state-sponsored universities that do not have the means to compete uh, while the second system, uh, which is essentially, sorry, let me do that again. And the second system is based on uh, rewarding excellence, uh, well, scientific excellence, uh, to universities that actually carry carry that carry that research out. Um, but they're saying that that is a is a rather philosophical reward, and perhaps there could be another way to reward um, departments that do you know, really good science. Um, and they sort of go on by saying that peer review from the community is uh, a great way to go forward, but uh, well, especially because it's not as expensive, but we also have to keep in mind that the quality of the review must somehow be monitored and maintained and uh, that publishers especially have to think about their reputations um in, in scientific communities. So the main question is, how can we guarantee that community review offers the same quality? <laughs> this is getting uh, back to what we were just saying. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and the end will keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah, again, some very excellent points being raised there. Not sure that I've got the answers to them. It's very difficult, isn't it? Yeah, to, to be able to get sort of one metric that all reviewers adhere to, it's, it's certainly when it's not a paid job, it's sort of a thing they're doing out of, out of I don't know, the goodness of their sort of wanting yeah. to get back as well. So it's, it's sort of a, it's a difficult one. And I, I guess maybe, as you said, the interviewee, might have some interesting ideas on that. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, people talk about uh, many sort of regular uh, jobs in, in for, for example, the IT sector. Uh, many, especially nowadays, people with without 
sort of typical degrees that are suited for that job of being hired and sort of trained. So I suppose that could be something that we could do for um, for for peer reviewers who aren't part of the academic community. Uh, sort of develop training programs that will allow them to sort of make sure that whatever they do is up to a certain standard of, of quality. But I don't know. I mean, obviously, all of these I things think, are above my pay grade. <laughs> I think, I think, from my perspective, I I think that we should try and have science as openly accessible as possible. Um, you know, the the points raised um, by in in this feedback about kind of balancing rewarding excellent work and and uh, also having you know things be fully accessible and and freely distributed um it is you know there is there's got to be some balance there but i mean i would i would always advocate i think for making things as openly accessible as possible i, I think yes. that's the reason why the archive is brilliant yes. Um, yes. astronomy Absolutely. and astronomy yeah. i think is actually reasonably good when you compare it to other mm-hmm. scientific fields for having those papers just freely accessible anyone can have a look at them if they're you know a professional at an institution or if they just have an interest in it um, you know, I think quite often when we've been talking about papers we've, we've linked to the open access version of them mm-hmm. I'll have to check actually I, I, I don't know if nature the paper that I was talking about offer that but uh, I'll definitely check that but it, you know the question of open access is something that we have talked about on the Drodcast before so um, here at Drodgel we've got Dr Rachel Ainsworth and, and she's a big advocate for um, open science in astronomy and so if you go back to our um, April Extra episode from 2018 so just over a year ago um, you can remind yourself a little bit of uh, of what she was saying about that so yeah continuing conversation again very good points raised, and uh, I don't have Not the answer. Really sure what the answer yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, but um, I think it's really important to have these discussions alongside talking about the science. You know, we also need to talk about the scientific community and the and just the the society around science because they are all they all are interlinked. You know, you can't necessarily separate the pure scientific fact from the context that it's come from. So. Good. Let's keep this conversation going. <laughs> so moving on to our social media channels. So on Facebook, um, Penny Jackson has sent us some feedback based on Josh's artistic prowess in the April Main episode. Um, I have not actually had a look at this. I should do that. So basically, uh, Fiona had brought a paper in which had some weird alien looking thing on it and a representation of an alien. And we went on to describe it with Josh having not seen it. Uh, for him to draw, and he did a pretty good job. Oh. Well, well, Pe- Penny, Penny Jackson has said, I'm kind of disappointed by how good this picture is. I was hoping for something which looked far less like the one in the show notes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, t- turns out maybe Josh's alternative career is an artist. Who knows? We'll, we'll pass that on to him. Also a very economically fruitful one. So, Nigel Eek has also sent us some feedback on Facebook. So, in our April Extra episode, we were talking about the black hole, and... Nigel said there's an uncanny resemblance between our first picture of a black hole and HAL 9000. That's a reference <laughs> to something that I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I do see that. We, we, we've we got that in space. That's mildly terrifying. <laughs> um, moving on, um, Yanto Guy on Facebook has said, I'm just catching up on a Jodcast backlog, having changed jobs and inadvertently reduced my podcast listening time. It's great to hear Haratina Mogasanu back on the Jodcast. Keep up the good work. I'm endlessly impressed by your commitment to podcasting. Oh, thanks, Yanto. That's really, really nice. And good luck with a new job. 
So that's all the feedback that we've had. Um, we love hearing from you, so please do send in any comments, questions, anything at all to us. Um, if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can also send us a post. The address is on the website. Thanks to 6E Resonant for the interview. The editors were Adam Overson, Deepika Venkatu, Michael Wright, Tian Bezoidenhoit and Benjamin Shaw. The producer was Fiona Porter. Until next time, Jod on! on!